KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, white evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. In understanding the ground troops for the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, much of our focus has been on white nationalist militias like the Proud Boys. But white evangelicals also played a big part on January 6th. Sarah Posner will explain. She's the author of the book, Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. But first, at Tuesday's session of the January 6th committee, we learned that Trump sought to lead an armed mob to the Capitol to stop the counting of the electoral votes that would make Joe Biden's election official. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news from this Tuesday hearing, to me anyway, was that Trump told the Secret Service to stop confiscating weapons from the people at his rally who were preparing to march on the Capitol. The reason he gave them was, quote, they are not here to harm me, close quote. Uh, this is from Cassie Hutchinson, the assistant to Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. Uh, how do you rank her testimony in contrast to, in comparison to earlier uh, 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 witnesses before this committee or any committee? Well, I, I think this was the single most riveting and amazing and dramatic and perhaps ultimately weighty. Uh, W-E-I-G-H-T-Y, it could be taken for something else, uh, testimony that we've ever heard. I mean, I think she put John Dean uh, back into second place after he blew the whistle on uh, his president, Richard Nixon, uh, in the Watergate hearings in 1973. So um, Trump wanted to go with the armed mob to the Capitol and he was enraged when the Secret Service told him that would be too dangerous and that he had to go back to the White House. My question remains today, what did he plan to do when he got to the Capitol? Well, that's a little unclear. And it's it's not clear that he had a clear plan. I mean, presumably he'd be there with followers whom he knew were armed if he planned to burst into the uh, joint session of Congress tallying the votes, which was live on TV to the world, that would have been, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the closest thing to uh, an insurrection, uh, at least, at least, and possibly even exceeding the bombardment of Fort Sumter. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and if, if, if he was serious about this, it's hard to imagine really what else he intended, if not that. Um, well, of course, uh, there is one other possibility. There were people chanting, hang Mike Pence, and he seemed to be aware of this. At least he was aware of it a little later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, in theory, if the Secret Service had been more... Uh, Trump's agent rather than sworn law law enforcement officials, you could almost have imagined a gunfight between his Secret Service agents <laughs> and Pence's Secret oh, Service geez. agents. It's the problem when fiction cannot keep up with reality, uh, when reality goes beyond the bounds of what any of us have ever imagined. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about Cassidy Hutchinson, the assistant to Mark Meadows. We saw that her office is just a few feet from the Oval Office. So she saw all, all and heard all kinds of things. Um, and everyone knew her. I mean, she says Rudy Giuliani told her on January 2nd, we're going to the Capitol, referring to January 6th, and it's going to be great. The president is going to be there. Ask Mark about it. So she went and asked her boss, Mark, and he told her, quote, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. That was pretty riveting testimony. Well, that was riveting testimony, but also if Trump was the hyperactive and temperamental two-year-old 
the picture she painted of her boss to whom she generally uh, uh, clung like a barnacle. And I don't mean that in a, a pejorative way. That was her <laughs> job. Um, uh, the, the picture she painted of Meadows was of, uh, you know, a, a, a person about as responsive as a corpse to everything <laughs> that was going on, no matter what, it, when he was warned of, of, of approaching violence, uh, when he was told by the White House counsel that some of the stuff uh, that the president was doing could be criminal. And when the actual riot was going on uh, at all points, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, he was on his couch scrolling through his uh, his cell phone, uh, uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, not exactly uh, a model of, uh, of staff activism or staff performance. She did say that Mark Meadows asked for a pardon uh, so apparently uh, he felt he might be guilty of a crime. Apparently. Well, you know, one of the other things she said is even though she discouraged him uh, from going to uh, a, a nighttime January 5th meeting with uh, Rudy and the uh, uh, plotters, uh, and plotters is both spelled with T's and D's <laughs> yeah. in, this, in this context. This is the famous uh, Willard Hotel war room the willard hotel war room we also know however that he called in to that meeting he didn't go but he called in so you know uh, there could be a great deal that mark meadows needs a pardon for uh should we talk about the scene in the suv with trump leaving the rally yeah i think of of all the images that will stick in uh, america's mind uh, that of Trump trying to grab the steering wheel so that the SUV would indeed go down to the Capitol uh, and then trying to choke uh, the Secret Service agent in charge of his personal Secret Service agent detail uh, when that agent, uh, uh, Robert Engel, uh, uh, tr uh, took his hand, tried to take Trump's hand off the steering wheel and, and Trump tried then to choke Robert Engel. I think that's an image that it will be uh, uh, forever in American consciousness. You know, we have an image of uh, of uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg. We have an image of Roosevelt saying the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And now we have an image of Trump trying to choke his Secret Service agent. Let us admit, this is the Bobby, which we we now call him yes. Bobby. Bobby Engel. Bo that's right. Bobby Engel's job is to put himself in front of a bullet aimed at Trump, and yet Trump is trying to choke him. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this is uh, the image of Trump as the out-of-control two-year-old, uh, only really as a uh, fully grown-up sociopath. Uh, speaking of images of things that are stuck, what about the image of the ketchup on the wall of the presidential dining room? Yeah, again, this, and, and, and the broken dishes and the apparently, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, this had happened several times during uh, her tenure at the White House, which uh, consisted of the entirety of the period in which uh, Trump had lost the election but refused to acknowledge it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, uh, the image of the uh, two-year-old certainly keeps coming to mind. Uh, I do have to say that throwing apparently his his lunch plate with the, of course, must have been a burger. I figure ketchup means burger. Yeah. Throwing his lunch plate and the, with the ketchup against the wall uh, is not as bad as leading an armed mob on the Capitol. No, it isn't. And, you know, in some circles, it could be even viewed as the act of a food critic. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, no, uh, leading an armed mob on the Capitol gets us into the realm of treason, which is defined as making war against the United States. Uh, but, you know, uh, the petty vandalism of, uh, of defacing a White House office, uh, you know, after all the complaints about the... Uh, 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 BL, BLM uh, demonstrations and damage of property. I mean, you do, you do, uh, uh, you, you do have something there, but it's more revelatory of Trump's character than uh, uh, you know it is of any you know major law breaking. So I want to get back to this question of what did Trump intend to do 
once he got to the Capitol, which he was planning to do and intended to do and publicly announced he was going to do. I, uh, my thinking about this beforehand, before Tuesday's testimony was that, first of all, there was the, the, the fake electoral vote scheme, the fraudulent vote scheme that they were going to get Pence. The plan was Pence would rule that because some states submitted two sets of electoral ballots, the ballots had to be returned to the state legislatures to decide. And these were Republican state legislatures, which would then vote in favor of Trump. And so the electoral count would be postponed until the pro-Trump fake ballots would come in. That was the original plan. But then at the last minute, Mike Pence announced he was not going to do this, uh, This it, that uh, he was going to rule that, that Biden was, was, was elected. So then the next plan seemed to be just to kind of send the, the mob to break up, to interrupt and to prevent the Congress and my, under the leadership of Mike Pence from completing its job. So then there would just be kind of mass confusion of, well, could Biden be declared president if there wasn't the constitutionally required vote of the Electoral College, and then Trump would be remaining president. And who knows, maybe the Supreme Court would, you know, rule that he should remain president, or maybe he'd declare martial law, or maybe, maybe, maybe. That, I thought, was the whole plan. But none of this required him going to the Capitol himself. So obviously, I'm missing something here. Well, you know, uh, again, this is a, a guy who uh, is this impulsive sociopath. And so uh, he may not have been clear himself on what he was what he was going to do. I, I should say that if something like your latter scenario took place, I think there would have been a real possibility. Uh, we already know that a number of cabinet members were talking about invoking the 25th Amendment. Uh, and I think, you know, that would have certainly heightened the possibility of that happening. And uh, Cassidy Hutchinson did testify that she was aware that these conversations were going on and that Mark Meadows was aware that these things were going on and that somebody should tell the president he needed to worry about this. But she actually said that Sean Hannity was calling in with those warnings, you know, <laughs> yes. and he's taken very seriously in the Trump White House. Uh, so, uh you know, I mean, that that could, in fact, have been one of the consequences of your scenario B there. Uh, of course, um, Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chow resigned from the cabinet in protest at this point. So their votes would have been missing from the uh, 25th Amendment uh, scenario. I'm a little concerned about that part of it. That would have been the only time in human history when decent people would have missed Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chow. <laughs> okay. Um, just a few words. I, I, I also want to complain briefly about some of the headlines in the mainstream media treatment of this story, particularly the Los Angeles Times on Wednesday morning. Their headline was, Trump knew of January 6th threat. The Washington Post headline, in contrast, was, Trump sought to lead armed mob to the Capitol. And the New York Times headline, at least the original one, was Trump sought to join January 6th mob. Which of these do you think is the best? I think it's pretty obvious which one is the worst. Well, I, I think the Washington Post one uh, it carries the, the most punch. Uh, New York Times one isn't bad. And uh, the LA Times one suggests a degree of both sides timidity, which is a disgrace. So the big question all the pundits are asking is whether the Justice Department now should indict Trump for criminal offenses, the crime of obstructing a congressional proceeding, incitement of insurrections, perhaps treason, as you've suggested. Uh, according to the most recent polling, uh, about 60% of all Americans think Trump should be indicted. And this was before, this poll was from before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony on Tuesday. 20% of Republican voters 
also thought Trump should be indicted before Tuesday's hearing. Uh, your colleague at the prospect, Robert Kuttner, again, writing before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, uh, had the following scenario. Uh, if one wanted to be truly cynical, he wrote, one would hope that Attorney General Merrick Garland would decide not to indict Trump. That in turn could give him more of a shot at winning the Republican nomination, which would make the Republicans easier to beat in 2024. Um, and indeed, Trump at this point has lost so much appeal with other Republicans that he would probably be a weaker general election candidate than Ron DeSantis or even Mike Pence or even, he mentioned, Josh Hawley. Um, and Trump's presence on the ballot, of course, would rally Democrats and lead to a higher Democratic turnout. So, so Kuttner's scenario is we want Trump on the ballot. It would make it harder to get him there if he's indicted. So we should, if we are cynics, hope that Merrick Garland does not indict him. What do, where do, what do you think? Well, this is sort of a variant on what we're seeing now in which some Democratic candidates for office in November are, uh, you know, when there's a Republican primary, are attacking the more mainstream Republican in the hope that they end up running against a real lunatic, which is one thing that just happened, by the way, in the Illinois gubernatorial primary. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a variant of that. I'm not entirely sure uh, that indicting Trump and even convicting Trump would uh, clearly deny him the Republican nomination. There are enough hardcore lunatics uh, in the Republican Party that I think he would still maintain his base. I do think, though, that the way the uh, sands are shifting, uh, you know, uh, the cause of a Ron DeSantis is certainly rising and that of a Donald Trump uh, is, is sinking, even within the Republican Party. Well, let us move on to the other big news of the week, which actually is bigger news in terms of the effects on the future of Americans. And that was the Supreme Court ending the constitutional right to abortion. Um, let's start by noting that support for abortion has never been higher. The percentage of Americans identifying as pro-choice this month was the highest since 1995. Uh, on the other side, only 30% of Americans identify as pro-life, the lowest since 1995. This is from the Gallup poll. So the great majority of Americans are opposed to the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, yes, they are. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, clear even before that decision came down, since we had the leak of this, uh, the decision and polling uh, after after the leak. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Samuel Alito made brave posturing that the court was this inviolable entity in his decision that should not be affected by the vagaries of fundamental public opinion in the United States. And that is, of course, uh, in accord with what increasingly uh, is evident as the fundamental flaw in American democracy which is that uh, a, a skillful, uh, wily, devious minority can rule in this country, given all the loopholes and flaws and uh, you know booby traps uh, in our uh, political and electoral system uh, over uh, clear majority sentiment. And that's certainly what happened in this case. Well, we've been trying to think of other moments in American history when the Supreme Court deprived an entire class of Americans of their rights. Uh, there's only one, and you thought of it, the Dred Scott case in 1857 seems to be the closest. R remind us about that one. Well, that was a case in which a, uh, uh, an enslaved black uh, citizen in uh, Missouri uh, who had been previously living in the free states of Illinois and Wisconsin, sued for his freedom. The case went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the court uh, sat on that case until uh, an avowed pro-Southerner, James Buchanan, was about to become president. And on the eve of his presidency, Chief Justice Roger Taney not only denied uh, Dred Scott his freedom, but said that Blacks, 
both free and slave, could never be citizens of the United States and therefore had no standing uh, to bring a, a, a case to court. Um, and that Congress had really no, uh, no standing to create laws like the Missouri Compromise, which guaranteed the freedom of uh, the North, the Northern states. Um, in so doing, Taney really went against certainly the majority of Northern opinion. And he uh, really arrogated for the court uh, huge powers that went, you know, that put it well into you know, legislative uh, activism um, and went well beyond really what the issues immediately at hand. And that's exactly what Sam Alito did. Uh, and that he's done on various occasions, uh, promoting a case, waiting for him to get a majority support. And then, as you said, uh, denying fundamental rights to a whole, uh, a whole class of citizens. And, you know, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said, look, you know, the case before us is about Mississippi's 15-week uh, limit uh, to uh, legal abortions. We can just rule on that, uh, just as Taney could have simply ruled on the uh, freedom or not freedom of Dred Scott. And Alito basically said, look, I got the votes. Uh, we're going to go beyond that. And uh, here it is. Now, both Taney and Alito sort of more or less express the opinion, okay, now this is legally settled. Well, of course, the effect of the Dred Scott decision was <laughs> yes. to make uh, the Civil War almost inevitable. And we've already seen that the effect of the uh, decision of the court, uh, the decision written, opinion written by uh, Alito, has divided an already tremendously polarized nation. In fact, both of those decisions came at a time when the nation was hugely polarized and had the effect of, you know, amping that up, uh, you know, exponentially. So the parallels between Taney and Alito, I think, are quite strong. It, but of course, the end of constitutional protection for abortion does not mean the end of abortion in the United States. It only means it's now up to each of the 50 states. And we know that about 26, about almost exactly half of the states are either abolishing any right to abortion immediately or are on the way to doing that right now. But there are still 26 states where abortion will be legal in some form or other, including some where it will be protected as part of the Constitution and paid for by the state governments for poor women. So, so there is a lot of work to be done. Um, and in particular, in the upcoming midterms, governors are a key line of defense in the battleground states that have Republican majorities in the state legislatures. We're talking here about Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan, states which will, of course, be critical in 2024. So and our immediate- And Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania. So our immediate tasks are Wisconsin, re-elect Tony Evers governor, Michigan, re-elect Gretchen Whitmer governor, Pennsylvania, elect Josh Shapiro governor, and of course, Georgia elect Stacey Abrams governor. What else is on your political to-do list? Well, I think, you know, honestly, the Democrats uh, were looking at a pretty bleak election going into uh, November. Uh, I think, you know, this will, in, in, conjunction, in conjunction with the court, making it easier to have concealed weapons just a couple a month or so after the Uvalde massacre. Uh, I, I think uh, this creates a possibility that Democrats will not get wiped out in the November election, that this hits home in, in a way that personally affects certainly every woman of childbearing age and people who want to, you know, support and respect women of childbearing age. Uh, I, I think there's a lot at stake. And I think in California, for instance, putting a constitutional amendment to protect the right to choose on the ballot um, clearly advantages Democratic candidates and poses a conundrum for Republican candidates across the board because part of their base is dead set opposed to that. 
But if they're dead set opposed to that, they're going to alienate a lot of voters. And I can see some Republican congressional districts in California going Democratic. Uh, I could name some. Uh, uh, you know, as a result, let's name some. Let's name some. Well, I think the district in northern L.A. County uh, with the elected a Republican in a special election uh, who won only by 300 votes. I think that both the Republican districts in Orange County, possibly one Republican district, even in Riverside County. You know, I mean, the uh, California Republicans tend to be less anti-choice. It's, you know, it's a more libertarian uh, uh, form of conservatism. So too in Nevada, so too in Arizona. So we shall see uh, where, where these states go. One last thing. It's time for news of the class struggle in America. Special feature this broadcast, Apple workers in the Baltimore area voted last week to join a union. That's the first Apple store to do that. This was a store in Towson, Maryland. They're joining the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. The initial tally was 65 to 33, two to one in favor of a union. Uh, We've talked a lot about the Amazon workers on Staten Island. Apple retail store workers are different from Amazon warehouse workers. For one thing, um, they are the geniuses. They work at the Genius Bar, and and Jeff Bezos does not call his employees geniuses. Uh, where <laughs> take it from here, please. Well, you know, this is sort of given that description. You you might say they're sort of midway between all of the university grad students who are. Uh, unionizing like crazy, and um, the Starbucks workers, a disproportionate number of whom uh, are, you know, young people, uh, many of them college graduates, and this is the one job they can get or the job that they can can support them while they're doing something else. Uh, A lot of this is simply generational. And if it indeed has become almost a generational norm, and I would argue that it has, I mean, if you look at the polling, 77 uh, percent support for unions among Americans under 30. Uh, that makes, you know, the usual union deterrent strategies that, that companies wage, most of which are illegal, but they get away with it anyway, uh, become a lot less effective. So we'll see if Apple is yet another straw in the wind. This has been news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. You can read Harold Meyerson at prospect.org, where he writes about every hearing of the January 6th committee. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. In understanding the January 6th insurrection beyond the role of Trump in the White House, we've all focused on white nationalist militias like the Proud Boys. But white evangelicals played a big part on January 6th. For comment, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah's a reporter for Type Investigations. Her reporting and analysis of the religious right in Republican politics have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, among other places. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, the big news of the past week about Trump's actions is that he finally spoke out about the House committee hearings. The media focused understandably on what he said, But we're also interested in where he said it and who his audience was. He spoke about the January 6th hearings for the first time at the annual conference of something called the Faith and Freedom Coalition. What is the Faith and Freedom Coalition? The Faith and Freedom Coalition is a political advocacy organization formed by Ralph Reed, who's a longtime religious right activist. Some of your older listeners might remember him from the time he led the Christian Coalition, and also that he was um, 
vanquished for a little while from the uh, religious right world after his involvement in a lobbying scandal uh, led by the disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff. Um, he was involved with Abramoff in basically double-crossing evangelical groups who were anti-gambling while he was at the same time working um, working for uh, an Indian tribe that wanted to get a casino. But he made a comeback with the Faith and Freedom Coalition in the late 2000s. Um, and now his annual conference is has always been kind of a must-attend for uh, particular for politicians, for Republican politicians, but particularly those who want to run for president. Now, I would imagine that Mike Pence is much better known at the Faith and Freedom Coalition as a speaker than Donald Trump. So, you might expect some sympathy or defense of of uh, Mike Pence there. What happened when Trump spoke? Well, he um, he lambasted uh, Pence. Well, he lambasted the January 6th committee in general for what has been disclosed in the hearing so far. But he also revived his claims that Pence lacked the courage to do the right thing on January 6th, meaning Pence wouldn't do his bidding and do something illegal by overturning the election results on January 6th. I've been covering, I didn't cover this particular conference. Um, it was in Nashville, whereas typically pre-pandemic, uh, they would have these conferences in Washington, D.C., where I'm based. But I've been covering these kinds of conferences for, for a really long time. Mike Pence, before Trump came on the scene, Mike Pence was much better known to these audiences. He is one of them. He used to go to these conferences and say, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order, right? He really played his evangelical credentials to these, these kinds of audiences. And he was always seen as a man of God and, and a you know, true patriot and all of that. And the, the submission to Trump by the evangelical movement is basically really complete because here, here's an audience of people who are longtime allies of Mike Pence and they're basically supporting Trump, lambasting him when Trump had incited a crowd that was chanting, hang Mike Pence. And we learned during the January 6th hearings last week that the mob was 40 feet away from Pence and his wife and daughter. You know, it's really just astonishing. I mean, if anyone else had threatened Mike Pence's life, they would be persona non grata, you would think. Um, but it just papered over. The prominent role uh, played by evangelicals on January 6th started with the Stop the Steal rally that morning. That's where Trump called on his supporters to march on the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell. Evangelicals were in the crowd, but they were also on the stage. Uh, tell us about that, starting with the opening prayer at the Stop the Steal rally. The Florida televangelist Paula White is a longtime friend of Donald Trump and is known as his personal pastor or spiritual advisor. She's always on hand for all of his important rallies and speeches. And so she gave an opening prayer on January 6th. She called on God to give us a holy boldness in this hour. And she also called the election results into question. And she asked God to let the people have the assurance of a fair and a just election. She implored God to let every adversary against democracy, against freedom, against life, against liberty, against justice, against peace, against righteousness be overturned right now in the name of Jesus. So she gave a Jesus-focused imprimatur on Trump's questioning of the election results and his call for his supporters to fight it. And she used the term overturn, overturn mm -hmm. the election. Well, I mean, to be fair, um, that is a term that she uses frequently in her uh, spiritual warfare language, where she calls on God or Jesus to overturn something that's happening in the world that that she believes goes against, uh, you know, biblical values or 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 what she wants politically. So it's 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 a bit of a coincidence, uh, I guess, that it also <laughs> pertains to the election results. But she also could have chosen another word. Chosen <laughs> I, I just have one one question about Paula White. Trump has a spiritual advisor? So, yes, she's a prosperity televangelist, uh, pretty popular. Um, she has a church in, um, in uh, central Florida. The story goes 
that Trump, when he was at Mar-a-Lago uh, in the early to mid 2000s and was uh, channel surfing, happened upon her television show, became very interested. She's a very uh, svelte blonde woman. And uh, he invited her, he had his secretary invite her to come see him at Trump Tower. And uh, according to the lore, the rest is history. Okay, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. So back to January 6th. After the mob broke into the Senate chamber, mostly what we remember is that QAnon shaman guy with the horned helmet and the furs, but the mob also paused for a prayer. Tell us about that. Right. So they were ransacking the Senate chamber, looking for evidence of election fraud, looking for evidence of, of senators being traitors and so on. We've all seen the video of them rummaging through Ted Cruz's notebook. And then they paused to pray and they prayed in Jesus's name. And the QAnon shaman also prayed in Jesus's name just to show that this kind of Christian nationalism that the insurrectionists believed that they were carrying out God's will or they were doing this in Jesus's name is was something that kind of permeated the atmosphere that day. I mean, the, the Proud Boys also had prayers before they assaulted the Capitol. And the fact that the QAnon shaman got wrapped up in these Christian nationalist prayers just shows that Christian nationalism sort of transcends Christianity itself to be adopted by people who were expressing themselves supposedly in another religion or even no religion at all on that day. Going back before January 6th, in explaining the planning for the insurrection, we've learned a lot about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and other white nationalist militias, which have been organized for a long time. But you say there was also a Christian right group that formed to stop the steal and that they argued in favor of a holy war against an illegitimate state. That group called itself the Jericho March. You say they helped lay the groundwork for the insurrection. Tell us about the Jericho March. So the Jericho March was organized by two people who were at the time working at Trump's uh, Department of Health and Human Services. One uh, did uh, was a contract worker who did uh, public public relations or media work for the Office of Civil Rights um, inside the Department of Health and Human Services. And another was on assignment at the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the department. So here were two people on the federal payroll who organized this event um, to gather Christians to pray for the overturning of the election results. They organized a lot of uh, local marches um, and prayer um, prayer rallies um, in various states, particularly the states where the vote where Trump was contesting the vote, but also a very major rally on the National Mall on December 12th, 2020. It featured a lot of, um, shall we say, Christian rights celebrities um, like uh, Eric Metaxas, who's an author and radio host, who's a big Trump supporter and also very popular with the base. He was the MC. Michael Flynn, uh, who, you know, his uh, Trump's disgraced national security advisor spoke, but they also had speakers from kind of these more radical fringes of the of the radical right, like Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keepers founder, and Alex Jones, the conspiracy radio host. It was a, I don't know, like an eight hour rally with all of these speakers. And the idea of calling it the Jericho March was to portray themselves as being like Joshua's army in the Bible who brought down the walls of Jericho. And so they kind of equated the walls around the city of Jericho to being the walls of the deep state. And they were gonna make the walls of the deep state fall. And then the what they claimed falsely uh, was the stolen election result would be overturned. And they were very explicitly talking about how they were you know, carrying out God's will in this regard. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Michelle Bachman, that's a name I had not heard for at least a decade until I read your reporting on this. Michelle Bachman, just to remind our listeners, was the sort of crazy evangelical congressional representative from suburban Minneapolis, elected to the House in, I think, 2006, ran for the presidency and the Republican nomination in 2012. But 
after she came in sixth in the Iowa caucuses with 5% of the vote, she she pulled out of the presidential campaign. Uh, then she ended her congressional career and she sort of disappeared as far as I know. But uh, I learned from reading your reporting that she was inside the Capitol on January 6th. She said she went to the chapel to pray that day and you found her comments on the radio at the end of that day. Tell us about Michelle Bachman on January 6th. Michelle Bachman most definitely did not disappear from the perspective of Christian right activists uh, since the time that she ended her presidential run in 2012. She is a frequent speaker on, on you know, the speaking circuit. She appears at conferences all the time. Uh, she's a frequent radio uh, guest and not disappeared at all. And she is actually now the dean of the School of Government at Regent University, the Christian university that was founded by the televangelist Pat Robertson. So that's a lot to think about that she's the dean of a school of government. In any case, on January 6th, she went on a, on a live stream prayer call that's hosted by Jim Garlow, who's a Christian right activist most known for his um, campaign against uh, uh, marriage equality in California. So when she spoke on that prayer call that evening, she told the, the participants in the prayer call that the people she saw at the Capitol were the kind of people that we were with, the nicest, friendliest, happiest. It was like a family <laughs> reunion. It was incredible. It was wonderful. This didn't look like anything like the Trump crowd or the prayer warriors, the prayer warriors being the people who were inspired by the Jericho marches to go and pray outside the Capitol. So Michelle Bachman... Uh, reporting on her experience of being inside the Capitol on January 6th. This has been your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, a special feature of this broadcast. <laughs> there have been some white evangelical leaders who denounced the insurrection, and let's give let's let's not forget about them. I, I read that at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting, I think it was last year in Nashville, there had been a resolution prepared to, quote, denounce the Capitol insurrection as inconsistent with faithful Christian citizenship. It was pulled from, from a vote. It had been drafted by a Texas pastor named Bart Barber, and Bart Barber was elected head of the Southern Baptist Convention at their recent meeting in Anaheim just a, a week or two ago. So he's very much critical of, of the January 6th insurrection. And Bart Barber is not the only one. That's right. Shortly after January 6th, when I was doing my reporting on um, the Jericho March and the aftermath of the Jericho March, I spoke with Robert Jeffress, who is a Southern Baptist pastor in Dallas, a very prominent megachurch pastor who's very close to Trump. Now, he denounced the violence that took place at the Capitol that day, but he also hedged it by saying that Trump is entitled to his opinion about whether the election was stolen. Jeffers himself does not believe the election was stolen. He believes that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. But this is a very potent example of how Trump is, is given a pass by the evangelicals who support him. So some have been notably silent um, in the year and a half since January 6th about, the, about it at all. Some have denounced the violence but almost all of them stopped short of saying Trump was the cause of the violence or saying Trump contributed to or incited the violence. They will not go that far. And the fact that Jeffress said, well, Trump is entitled to his opinion about whether the election was stolen will just be like a, a perpetual pass for Trump to make up lies, right? Because if you're entitled to your opinion about something that is an indisputable fact. You could you could never say that Trump was lying about something. So there have been at least a few prominent evangelical leaders who put at least some distance between themselves and the insurrection. But we also know something about let's call it the mass of evangelicals view of the insurrection. There's been some polling on that. This is after people have seen how violent and anti-democratic the January 6th insurrection was. Mm -hmm. What do we know about white evangelicals' opinions about what happened on January 6th? Well, again, they're unlikely um, to blame January 6th on Donald Trump. 
um, only 26% of white evangelicals uh, blame Trump for the violence, um, according to polling that uh, took place in September of 2021. Um, so we don't know yet whether the January 6th committee hearings might be changing some minds, but that was true, you know, eight months or so after the insurrection. And um, the only group, this is according to polling from Public Religion Research Institute, the only group a majority of white evangelicals blame for the January 6th insurrection um, is liberals or left-wing activists. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me for chuckling here, but what's the logic of that position? Well, there's no logic to it, but I think you have to understand the media and social media bubble that a lot of white evangelicals operate in. Um, This is what they've heard. This is what they've heard in their Facebook feeds. This is what they've heard on Fox News. Uh, This is what they've heard um, on other Christian media. Uh, So they're not operating in the reality-based world in terms of the facts that have been uncovered about January 6th and and its root causes. And so a lot of this polling reflects the conspiracies and disinformation that they are, that they're immersed in. So big picture, everybody wants to know why, why would religious people support Donald Trump, even his illegal and unconstitutional acts? He's a man who seems to us at least to defy Christian values with everything he does and says. There is a conventional answer to this, which is that evangelical support Trump, despite his offenses to Christian morality, in exchange for his promising anti-abortion judicial appointments. And Trump fulfilled his part of the deal, and so they support him. But you say white evangelical support for Trump is based on far more than that deal. What do you mean? Well, white evangelicals don't really like living in a pluralistic democracy. They would rather live in a country where, in their view, the government is guided by biblical values or a biblical worldview, which they believe includes no LGBTQ rights, no reproductive rights, um, no separation of church and state. And so because Trump was willing to stomp all over, not just the democratic institutions like our elections, but also democratic values. And he conveyed that in every campaign speech and literally every time he opened his mouth, he would be saying something offensive or racist. And what they liked about that was that he was sticking it to the liberals or he was pushing back against the woke mob or he was, you know, letting everybody know that he wouldn't be kicked, uh, you know, pushed around by political correctness. And that was something that they really liked about him. He wasn't to them sticking his finger in the wind and seeing which way the political winds were blowing. He was just letting them do what they wanted, restoring the Christian heritage of America like they wanted, they had wanted previous Republican presidents to do. And so in a nutshell, They liked him because he's an authoritarian. Um, And so it didn't matter whether he went against a lot of the biblical values that they claim to hold dear. In fact, many of them said as justification that sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader to lead a nation at an important, crucial juncture in its history. And God chose Donald Trump. Sarah Posner, she's the author of the book, Unholy how white Christian nationalists powered the Trump presidency and the devastating legacy they left behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Thank you, Sarah. This was great. Thank you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. 
With the Supreme Court abolishing the constitutional right to abortion, it's now up to the states, and Minnesota is a key state in the upper Midwest where abortion remains legal, unlike the surrounding states. South Dakota has already banned abortion. North Dakota will ban abortion within a month. Iowa is expected to ban abortion. Wisconsin has a ban on abortion from 1849 that has gone into effect, at least technically. So Minnesota is what they call an abortion island, a destination for many thousands of women from neighboring states seeking abortions. Minnesota Republicans may win control of the state house and Senate as well as the governorship in November. It's possible. And in that case, would Minnesota's abortion laws remain in force after the midterm elections? Well, here's what the opinion polls show. There's widespread support for maintaining abortion rights in Minnesota. This is the statewide MinPost change research poll. Support was strongest, of course, in the Twin Cities. 75% of people who live in Minneapolis and St. Paul favor abortion rights. That's more than the suburbs, but there was a majority support across Minnesota. Uh, in the suburbs, uh, it's about 69% support for maintaining abortion rights. And in the rural areas and small towns of Minnesota, 61% of voters opposed a ban on abortion. So Minnesota wants to keep abortion legal. This has been your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul and a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.